Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing a new colleague of mine. He is Andrew Rudman. He is the newly minted director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. I wanted to have you here because we are hearing an awful lot about what's going on at the southern border. Um, you know, we, we heard a lot about the southern border over the last, well, I mean, it's been a policy problem for uh, decades now, but over the last four years, I think in particular, we heard so much about the border and now, uh, with a new Biden administration, we're seeing what appears to be another surge of migrants at the border. Let's just lay some groundwork of what's going on at the border. When did this kind of when did this surge start and what are the the mechanics that are going on that are causing us sure aaron uh happy to be here and and happy to do that i think it's probably hard to say precisely when a surge started because obviously you don't know you don't know it's a surge until it's been going on for a while but i think it is important to recognize that the surge is driven by conditions in Central America and in Mexico that are forcing people or driving people to make a decision that um, either walking hundreds or or thousands of miles or taking a dangerous journey um, in a crowded truck or bus or paying a smuggler or whatever, that that's the right choice for them, that that's their best alternative. So that was all driven obviously by the hurricanes, uh, the two hurricanes that hit Honduras by the lack of safety in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador due to gang violence, due to uh, lack of economic opportunity, and uh, really a, a decision that coming to the States is, uh, is, is the best alternative. So I think it's, it's most important to remember that what's driving migration is not what we're doing in the States, it's what's happening in the places where people live. Tell us a little bit about these hurricanes. Um, we've, I think we've known about the, the challenges in the Northern Triangle with you know, drug cartels and gang violence. But tell us a little bit about these hurricanes in case that's missed the headlines of everything else that's gone on the last few months. So this were, were a couple of years ago and were, and were really quite devastating uh, in terms of their impact, particularly on, on Honduras and Guatemala. So, um, you know, when you have people relying a lot of, of agriculture jobs and, and uh, you know, the hurricanes are, are pretty devastating and, and really disrupt. If we think about even how, how, how long it takes in the U.S. for us to recover from some of the big hurricanes. Um, and then you sort of put that, you know, if, if in your mind's eye, imagine that happening in a pretty um, undeveloped or, or fairly undeveloped part of the world. Uh, where a lot of people are farming. And then you imagine those, you know, pictures of mudslides and heavy rains and winds and all. And 
I think you get a sense of what what that means. So as they're at the border now, what has changed as far as U.S. policy? That's that's right, Aaron. And, and that's a that's a good question. Um, one of the changes really was um, the Biden administration decision to reverse some of the policies of the Trump administration that were potentially contraventions of our international obligations. And, and I think from the Biden administration perspective, also a moral issue of how do you treat people who do have a right under international law to seek asylum. So uh, one thing the Biden administration has done is allow unaccompanied children to come into the United States and stay here. They're sending back families and they're sending back uh, single adults uh, at the same rate, if not a more uh, rapid rate than, than was occurring under the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration is still using um, Title 42 to exclude people on public health grounds. And um, that's happening at a rate pretty consistent with what it was under the Trump administration. Um, one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that an increasing number, two things, I guess, the increasing number of these migrants are single adults again, and there's an increase in Mexican migration. In the, for many years, the number of Mexicans migrating was actually negative. There were actually more Mexicans leaving the States than coming in, and it was, it was mostly Central Americans. And now because of COVID-19 and other uh, issues in the Mexican economy, you see more Mexicans trying to migrate. And obviously, whereas you can, you can and Mexico have to, uh, have to take care of the Central American migrants that are in Mexico, the Mexicans can go, you know, just as we can, you can, you can move around in your own country. So those are some of the changes that I think are maybe the makeup is a little bit different. And is Mexico treating these migrants any differently? Um, you know, there was a decision made by the Mexican administration to really kind of acquiesce to the Trump administration's demands to figure this out, do something about this situation. Is that changed now that there's a new administration in the United States? That's true. Uh, the Trump administration uh, put a lot of pressure on Mexico and, and threatened uh, trade sanctions, essentially, uh, if Mexico didn't crack down. And so Mexico did crack down the National Guard, which had been originally created to handle the, the security issues and the drug issues was essentially diverted to uh, policing for migration, um, which opens up a, a completely uh, another topic entirely about human rights and whether the Nat Mexican National Guard is, is trained properly, but we'll save that for another day. Um, I think that the Mexican government uh, was under, under the Trump era migration protection protocols was accepting uh, people who from other countries who had um, come to the U.S.-Mexico border uh, and tried to seek asylum and were essentially were immediately uh, kicked out. Uh, and that's why you have something like 70,000 people in, in uh, pretty squalid camps on the Mexican side of the border. Uh, there was a stretch where Mexico appeared to be interpreting its law differently and was refusing to take some of those people in. Um, now that there have been high-level conversations between National Security Council representatives and uh, the foreign ministry, uh, I, I think there is, a, there, there is clearly an effort to try to, to regularize that situation and try to figure out 
what to do to provide appropriate protection. And you mentioned that we're seeing an uptick in single people arriving at the border. And my understanding of this is that there oftentimes they will come one, a family will come one at a time. And this is why you have children coming unaccompanied, right? Cause they're, they've, you know, maybe, maybe one or two have gone already and then they're sending the child because there's somebody there to take them in if they can, I guess, get connected up with them. Is that, is that a correct assumption that, uh, that we've been hearing? Well, it is true that if, if it's an unaccompanied child, the, they are permitted to come into the United States and um, they're put in contact with a family member. And one of the challenges, one of the reasons you see those pictures or hear the stories, and we're not always seeing pictures of the the camps with lots of little kids, is they're trying to unite uh, those kids with a family member. Uh, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, we have to be careful that, that it not sound like, or, or people have the impression that, you know, a family of four is, is you know, having a, a you know, getting to the border and then sending them across one at a time. I mean, there, there's already somebody there uh, for, for this process to function that way. If, if it were just a kid who walks across and says, hi, I'm here, and there's nowhere for them to go, they're not, uh, they're not going to get uh, placed with somebody because there's no one, there's no one to, uh, with whom to place them. So I, I think um, it, it is true that families are migrating, and that's another important point, which is that our migration system was really set up to deter single adults, usually men, uh, and had more of a law enforcement approach. And now what you have is more of a humanitarian situation. And so we probably need to change our structure so that we can deal with, as you say, more families and more children to different kind of migration. And that requires a different system. So I want to ask you a little bit about this the policy question here, since we have a lot of policy people who listen to this podcast. And of course, you know, we're a nonpartisan organization. So, and this is a, a, a topic that gets partisan very quickly. So I just want to sort of lay that on top before I ask this question. I, I sort of have this theory of something called passive bipartisanship, where not everything that is bipartisan is some kind of positive action legislation. There are times when Congress just doesn't do something, but there's sort of a tacit agreement not to do it. Uh, it, it might be cloaked in disagreement. And it seems that immigration is one of those things that everybody complains about our immigration system on the left and the right and says there should be some kind of reform. But yet everyone seems to be okay with the status quo and letting administration to administration deal with this problem, how they deal with it, uh, without taking some sort of policy action that's really going to be a tough vote. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I put you on the spot there. And then we could go into kind of what maybe you see that needs to happen. But what are your thoughts on that? That's, that's an interesting point. When you, you know Congress uh, far better than I do, but... Um... It is probably true in that migration on occasion uh, flares up, so to speak, in the press. But then it, people, people have always been migrating. And 
these these issues as we talked about before it, it's sort of a peak but but it's not um, historically there have been lots of these and, and they're generally as I said earlier driven by economic conditions not by not by US policy so yeah I, I think you're probably right uh, and the other thing maybe is it, these are really hard complicated issues with lots of different strands and so I suppose if you're a member of Congress and your constituents aren't really worked up about it there's probably not much not much to be gained by wading into such a complicated issue and i think there's certainly a lot of members whose constituents aren't worked up about it but would get worked up about it as the debate heats up and that seemed to happen during the bush administration right that you know it was it was an issue that was just kind of lying there and it was you know simmer every once in a while but then when it was brought up man it really blew up um Policy-wise, it seems like we're facing a different challenge on immigration now than we were, say, 10 years ago. That used to be there was a, a kind of a driver to the United States economically, and now there seems to be this sort of humanitarian challenge within Central America that's driving so much of the immigration. Does that change the policy because 10 years ago i was hearing solutions from experts that well maybe we should you know had change our migration rules so that you can allow for more circular migration so people can go back and forth but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore so what really are the policy changes that we should be looking at well actually i think that the changing the rules to allow people to go back and forth um is still a, a valid policy option and, and maybe one that makes even more sense. Um, one of the things, that, uh, something the other day that, that pointed out that increasing migration is usually a leading indicator of economic recovery in the US. There are more jobs here and people who, you know, are here and they reach out to a family member and say, hey, I got my job back and they're hiring more people, you should come. So in a, in a sense, the fact that more people want to come may be positive, at least from the perspective of meaning that, that we're, our economy is turning the corner. Um, you know, we're vaccinating more quickly than Mexico or Central America. We're likely to come out of it more quickly. So that will drive people. But, you know, now we have millions of people living here um, on, in an undocumented status. And it's always seemed to me that it was more logical to give them a way to be here um, in a documented status since they want to be. Uh, I don't think we accomplish much by uh, denying people the right to be here uh, lawfully because they're going to continue to come and the demand is going to, to be there. Uh, the number of agriculture workers, for example, who are Americans compared to um, workers who are coming from Mexico or other parts of the world, you know, it's, it's mostly not U.S. citizens who want to pick strawberries. Um, in, in fact, we're working on, on a project with a researcher at uh, UC Davis who has, who points out that most of the agricultural workers in all of North America are Mexicans. They're Mexicans in Mexico, Mexicans in the United States, and even Mexicans in Canada. So I think changing policies in ways that would allow those people to go back and forth lawfully um, would be important. Uh, right now, most of the, the H-2A and 2B visas are available to Mexicans and, and very limited numbers to Central Americans. So changing policy to find ways to allow more Central Americans uh, 
to come lawfully would obviously reduce the drive uh, or, or the need for people to to try to get here in, in unlawful and dangerous ways. So when gas prices go up and migration goes up, it shows that there's some economic recovery, right? Those are those are good indicators. Um, and that's that's interesting. The uh, the policy challenges that it, it's really just kind of a Gordian knot that Congress has to cut through somehow. So, looking out on the horizon, I like to ask the on the horizon question of our experts: What do you see for this? Say over the the remainder of the year, how does the Biden administration try to tackle this? Um, and you know, may, is there any coordination with Mexico or the Central American governments, kind of what happens next? It's a good question. There, there has to be both short-term and long-term solutions. And the Biden administration has committed uh, to seek uh, $4 billion. Uh, the Mexican government, which doesn't have anything close to $4 billion to invest, but has committed to cooperating with the U.S. to try to fix the conditions on the ground, uh, the root causes of migration. That's obviously not a short-term fix. And that's the that's the causes in Central America, it's like putting so putting four billion dollars into these Central American com- countries. Right. It would be four billion over four years. And, and one thing the Biden administration has already done, which I, I think is really smart, is they've made it clear that these are not going to be big checks to central governments, uh, which unfortunately have often led to to corruption. And they've been very clear that they don't feel at this point that. The, the three federal governments in the Northern Triangle are, are good partners at the moment. So they're going to look for ways to support uh, state and local government and NGOs and other ways to um, basically to create opportunities uh, and hopefully reduce some of the violence. So that's an important step. The same should happen in, in the southern part of Mexico, in the south and southeast of Mexico, which is Mexico's most impoverished uh, area one of the most impoverished areas. And, and that too creates an issue because Mexico allows some Central Americans to work in Southern Mexico, but that's not where the jobs are. There are jobs in Central and Northern Mexico that Central Americans really don't have access to. So that's, that would be one, one possible change. I think the other thing the Biden administration is clearly trying to do is get a handle on, on uh, the backlog of asylum applicants the 70,000 people waiting on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexican border. And hopefully with the general trend of migration is that over the summer, it, uh, the numbers go down because it's hotter and more dangerous. Uh, and that as the Biden administration gets a handle on the numbers that they're trying to process, I think things will even out. But, you know, un- until people don't feel like walking 1,500 miles is their best choice, it's not going to change dramatically. And if you look at uh, the Washington office on Latin America has some really good data and some really good graphs that kind of show the peaks and valleys in, in migration. And every time there's a crackdown, the numbers go down. And as soon as the crackdown is lifted for whatever reason, the numbers go right back up. As, as you said, this goes back at least, it really goes back to Reagan, but certainly back to the Bush, uh, Bush administration. Regardless of how you feel about immigration on one side or the other, it really shows, I think, the strength of the American economy and sort of the resilience of the American dream that people are li- literally willing to walk it uh, and, and to come here and to send their children to walk it. That's not just a decision you just make 
on a whim. So that's a, I, I think that is something to just keep in mind, you know, that talk about America being great. That is a beacon there. So uh, we just need to figure out what happens when they get here. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right, Aaron. And I, I think that's the way to look at it. it. It's good that people want to be here. Um, we should want them to come and, but we should find a structure in which they can do it lawfully and in a controlled fashion. And so that uh, those people who would pose a threat to the United States don't get in in the midst of all the people who pose no threat at all. I mean, there's no doubt there are security issues we need to be mindful of. But the truth is, you're probably more likely to catch bad guys if there's a regularized process than if it's more of a free-for-all, right? If, if the incentive is to sneak across, you're going to get people sneaking across, quote-unquote, legitimately to work, and you're going to get bad guys sneaking across. If people can cross legally to work, then presumably the only people crossing unlawfully are the bad guys. And then um, CBP and, you know, would have more, um, uh, you know, would have more resources to, to go after the bad guys, I would think. All right, Andrew, I really enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed getting to know you and talking to you as a colleague here since you've joined the Wilson Center. So I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it was, it was my pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for the invitation. Look forward to doing it again. We'll certainly do that. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you did, we hope you will like, subscribe, maybe even leave a comment. And of course, be sure to check out International History Declassified, put on by our Cold War experts. They bring our archives to life. For the Western Hemisphere interests, we have the America's 360 podcast, the Brazil Institute podcast, To The Point, and the Argentina Project podcast. Check them out at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts.